Morena, Fano, brothers and sisters. When I was growing up, I was the youngest of five kids. And I had it good. Man, did I have it good. I didn't want for anything. Come birthdays or Christmas, big parcels, opening them up, older siblings. Oh, that's not fair. I've got rubber bands for my birthday. <laughs> I had it made. But you see, church family was a little different. You had Bob, and I'm changing the names, don't worry. You had Bob saying, mate, can you play a little louder on the drums? You had Pete cornering you as you wanted to just get, make your way out and get a biscuit, talking about his latest fad or pet topic. And then you had that person who will remain nameless even with a pseudonym, with the bad breath. <laughs> and if you don't know someone like that, it, it might be you. No. Um, just kidding. But this morning, I want to talk about church as a family. Church as a family, because as I've come to walk out my journey of faith, I really have had that revelation, and probably more recently than, than in my early days, that we have been born into a new family. That God has not just become our father, but he's given us a new set of brothers and sisters. And sometimes that can be brilliant and smooth sailing. And other times, man, well, you know the saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. A few slides just to sort of show that. Some awkward family photos. You might recognize yourself in some of them. Next one. There we go. Bet that baby. Oh, there we go. She doesn't, she doesn't look very happy, does she? But I want to ask this question as we start out this morning. What would it look like if church was family? What would it look like if we came to a Sunday morning, to a home group, to any other gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ, and it felt like family? You know, I actually think we're doing, we're doing okay here. I already feel pretty at home in this family. But I think we've always got the standard of, of Scripture to look at to measure just how well we are doing. And so I want to start there. I want to look at Scripture, what it says about family. But before I do that, what is your picture of family? Maybe it's this. Mum, dad, boy, girl, that's it. What do they call it? The, the nuclear family? Then I googled, oh, well, maybe a Greek family. What do we get there? This came up. A little bit bigger. A few more generations involved. And then I looked up Māori family. And this came up. You know, a whānau. A village. Grandparents. Great-grandparents. Aunties, uncles. Cousins. A loving whānau, I think has at least these three things. All persons knowing they belong and are valued. All generations participating, contributing and learning from each other. And the common good over individual gain. 
I'll say more about that later. But what would it look like if we, the church, was a family? Let's look to the scripture. What do the scriptures mean by the church being a family? I love this quote. It sort of stands out pretty strong. It says, No image for the church occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family, and no image offers as much promise as family for recapturing the relational integrity of first century Christianity for our churches today. And this next image shows a little bit of what the early church, what church family might have looked like. Around the table, breaking bread, getting around teaching, in each other's lives, all ages, welcomed to the table. A few things we need to understand, and and I found this really fascinating myself. I hope I don't bore you with the next few slides. But in ancient Mediterranean world, there were a few things that were quite different to our world. Firstly, it was part of a wider, what's called a strong group culture, which basically mean, meant as an individual, your identity wasn't found in pursuing your own thing. It was found in the group. It was found in, well, the, the Christians, it became the church. It was that group culture. Secondly, was that only males passed down family membership. And it's very foreign to us today, but basically what that meant was the strongest relationship back in that world, in that context, was actually the sibling relationship. Because you could, by blood, feel closer and more emotionally connected to your siblings than you did your spouse. And so when Jesus and the writers of the New Testament pick up this language of brothers and sisters, they're being very intentional. They are saying, look, we're talking about the closest kind of relationship you could possibly know. It's a little bit lost to us. And I, when I was reading this, I was like, man, we've come a long way. Romantic love is kind of the, the closest bond we can think of. But not in that time. This is another interesting point, is that brothers and sisters or adelphoi in Greek, is the most common term used to address and to self-identify that the Christians used. You see, over and over in Paul's letters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. It occurs 271 times. Crazy. And it reflects their powerful experience of community as a family, as a whanau. So, What does this mean for the early church? And maybe what does it mean for us today? Firstly, it meant that there was no such thing as individuals. This individualist thing that we have that is just kind of the water that we swim in today wasn't a thing. I think if if Paul came up to you today and you said, you know, I'm just sort of trying to figure out me and sort of just discover myself, I think he'd just look to you and be like, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you on about? He may not be offended. He just wouldn't know what you were, you were talking about. And the second thing is that church was the primary focus of group loyalty and solidarity for a Christian in the first century. But that's all good, and history is important, and we need to, to know what was going on at the time. But what about Jesus? What does Jesus have to say about the family? Because, man, I've, I've got to say... Jesus said some pretty strong things. 
And sometimes it looks like he's coming against family. Let's, let's take a little look. In Mark 3, 31 to 35, verse 35 says this, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. A little bit of context. He was having a meal with some of his disciples. His mum and his brother and his sister started knocking on the door saying, Hey Jesus, we, we want to see you. And then he says this, and it's like he just dismisses them. He's just like, whoever does my will is my mother, my brother, my sister. Then in Matthew 10, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whew, encouraging reading. <laughs> then Luke, even stronger. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. There you go, you've got to be suicidal. And then Matthew 8, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let, let me go and bury my own father. And in that context, in that culture, like, that's what you did. You did not walk away from, from burying your own dad. And Jesus tells him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Feeling encouraged this morning? What we need to understand is that Jesus is not against natural families. I want you to hear that this morning. He's not against your mum and your dad and your sister and your brother. But what he is saying is, hey, when there's a conflict of interest, when you're having to decide between the values that shaped who you are from your natural family and the values that ought to shape you in your new faith family, I want you to now put your faith family first. See, these anti-family passages, or supposedly anti-family passages, are forcing a choice when it needs to be made between natural and eternal family. Another quote, Jesus radically challenged his disciples to disavow, to disavow primary loyalty to their families natural families, in order to join the new surrogate family of siblings he was establishing, the family of God. And they needed that break. For some of these guys, they were coming from very interesting pasts, tax collectors, you know, other lifestyles that just did not line up with the lifestyle Jesus was calling them into, into their new family. A few more encouraging scriptures, you might say, are these two. Mark 10. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And in Matthew 23, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. I hope by now you can see that Jesus is calling into being a new family. And it is to be radically different in some ways, to some of our natural families and their cultures. What about Paul? What did he have to say? I'll race through these, because I don't want to give you a death by PowerPoint this morning. 
<clears throat> but what did he say? Well, the first point he wants to make is that we're receiving new siblings in faith. And, and these sibling relationships are, be t- are to be harmonious. They're to be unified and supporting and forgiving. There's some scriptures you may want to look up in your own time, but we see him sort of addressing very practical issues. You know, don't take your brother to court. Sort it out amongst yourselves. You know, don't eat something that's going to cause a brother or a sister to stumble. You know, don't pass judgment, but be forgiving. Be generous with your love. The second thing Paul says is that God's family has to take priority over other loyalties. You know, in 1 Corinthians 7, we sometimes read this as kind of like the, the love passage and it's all about marriage. But actually, Paul is fundamentally getting at the fact that the culture of, of the new family of God is meant to be over and above the natural family. And almost this sort of juxtaposition between the brother and the wife so close together just really highlights that. And lastly, the church family model is the divinely inspired solution to issues that divide, issues of race, of status, you know, inequality. For as Galatians says, you are all one in Jesus Christ. So, conclusions about the family of God. It is to be a new family, a new kind of family. It is to be our first loyalty and to be characterized by brotherly and sisterly love, sharing hearts, expressed in action, sharing stuff. Thirdly, commitment to God and his family are one and the same. Today, the hierarchy goes like this. I'm familiar with it, so you might be too. God, God first, then family, natural family, then church, and then others. Sound familiar? But in the early church, it went more like this. God and God's family are one, one and the same. You commit to God's family, you're committing to God. It's all tied up together. Then, then it's your commitment to your natural family. And then lastly, it's your commitment to others and to outreach. Now, what I want you to hear this morning is that I'm the biggest sinner (laughs) among you as far as getting this wrong. You know, I've tended to live mostly, most of my life in the top, in the top tier. And I'm still working out what it even means to live maybe in that second hierarchy. What does that look like? You know, for a lot of you here, your natural family will have a lot of God's family in it. And so there won't be those tensions. There won't be that needing to, to choose at times when there's conflict. But for others of you, you've been called out of quite a different lifestyle. And God is calling you. And he's saying, hey guys, here's a new family for you. This is what I want you to prioritize above all else. There's some obstacles now that we need to address because what is it that gets in the way of us becoming this kind of community? And the first thing is radical individualism. I don't think we even see this one sometimes. But it's the water that we swim in. It's the culture that we've just breathed in and out, day in, day out, week in, week out, since we were born. You know, and I don't have time to get into the history of that. But what it boils down to is this. 
It's this belief that every big life decision is on me. Every big fork in the road, I have to choose. You know, who I marry, where I live, what I'm to do with my life. And not that I've studied it, but I just sometimes wonder if the high suicide rate, just the meaninglessness in our culture today, has some of its um, genesis in this radical individualism. Sometimes it's healthy to, or helpful to look at lyrics, lyrics of songs, because I think pop culture often has its thumb on the pulse when it comes to the culture we live in. And these are lyrics from John Mayer, who's a popular singer-songwriter, and it just struck me as I was listening to it the other day. It says this in the verse, It doesn't matter where you roam, when no one's left to call you home. I might have strayed a bit too far, I'm counting all the moonlit stars. I'm a little lost at sea. I'm a little birdie in a big old tree. Ain't nobody looking for me here out on the highway. And I felt... I got emotional as I was listening to him singing that. Because I just think it's the song that a lot of people are singing today. Ain't nobody looking for me out here on the highway. We've sold, we've been sold a lie. That life is up to us, lived out on our own. And it's, it's crept into the church too. But as chorus, somewhat more hopeful, although <laughs> you'll see in line three, says this, but I will be found, I will be found when my time comes down. You know, when the curtain draws, when he dies, he will be found. There's a little bit of gospel in there. But I'm hoping that people that walk into our church, into our family, don't have to wait till their time comes down to experience family. Second obstacle. It's a bit of a, word, a, bit of a mouthful, but programmatic, attractional church. It's something that I think is common, but it's also being just deconstructed. And there's lots of churches that I'm following that are, that are moving away from this paradigm, this way of doing church. And it's a way of church that basically says, let's put on a bunch of cool, hip, awesome programs, and let's just get as many people as we can in the doors to experience those programs. Then they'll change. And it's a little bit like the sausage factory model. But it's very far removed from the model that we see in the early church. It was a missional church. It was a church that was family and that grew as family to then be the salt and the light in their places, in their work, in their contexts of the week. And I think the third obstacle is just our overall low view of church. It's this thing of God, my natural family, Church. Church comes down the list. And I own this probably more than a lot of you here because in our generation particularly, we're encountering a movement known as the spiritual but not religious. You heard of that one? Yeah, I'm spiritual, but, but I'm not religious. I don't go to church. You know, I, I have faith, but a church isn't for me. And I think we've lost some of those people because of what church has become. Not a family but an event or a program 
or something you feel you need to clean up and get your act together before you can come to. But what would messy church look like, brothers and sisters? What would, hey, come as you are. This is a family, and God is calling you to it. So, I want to end with this. How might we start to adopt this family-shaped vision of church for our community? And in some ways, I'm not going to get too deep into the practicals, because I think that's a conversation that we will continue to have. And it probably will take a message more, message or two more or three more to unpack and unfold and start to teach. But I want to start with the macro level. Like what, what could this start to look like? The first thing is I think we just need to believe that we are saved into a community. There came a point in the history of the church where the message of the gospel became make a personal decision follow Jesus, and have a personal relationship with God. It became very individualistic. And I'm not writing off that part of it. We need to keep that. But we need to add the other half. And that is, yes, you made a personal choice to accept Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour, but you were then saved into not only personal relationship with God, but into a family of God. You not only got a father but you got new brothers and sisters. And so, hey, Jesus, like, I, I know you, I follow you, I serve you, and we're sweet, right? I don't need that family business. And I think he's just saying, he's whispering, he's challenging us. No, you need that. You need that too. Secondly, and this is hard, man, <laughs> is we need to sacrifice our personal preferences for the family. You know, letting go of that freedom to choose. I think the freedom to choose starts being overwhelming. If you walk down the aisle of the supermarket lately, you see how many choices of cereal there are? Or of soft drink? Or you name it? They call it choice anxiety. It's actually a thing. You're probably going to the shrink's office now and they'll be like, yeah, you've got choice anxiety. Um, it's a thing. And, and what I love about the family of God is we didn't choose it. God chose us for it. There's a big difference. We can choose our friends, but we can't choose our family. God chooses our family. So we've got to let go of our freedom to choose. And, and we can't be individualists anymore, guys. We've got to... We've got to surrender that to something greater. Thirdly, and I'll touch on this more in probably a future message, but we have to embrace the intergenerational nature of family. We're talking a lot about intergenerational, and it needs more time to unpack. But we've got to start by actually saying the family always had intergenerational as a part of it. You know? You don't actually, when you look into the scripture, you don't see too much intergenerational word because it was just part of the fabric of family. And what this might look like, really quick, just to touch on a few practicals, is it's going to look like relationships first. You know, mentoring. Older, coming alongside younger. Investing into them. Encouraging them. Getting around them and saying, hey, what are you into? Hey, I'm into that too. How can I mentor you into that? 
I think it's also going to look like understanding each other. You know, there's been no greater change than in the latest 20 or 30 years. And they're saying that the millennial generation, that's, that's me, that's some of these guys, and the DigiNatives, they call them, they have gone through, they have lived through the greatest change that humanity has ever seen, technologically, socially, and without putting too much of a fine word on it, it screwed us up, man. Like, it has. It's done something to our emotional health and our mental health. And we need to understand that. And us younger ones, we need to understand the older generations. We need to listen and hear your stories. We need you to guide and to direct. And we need to move away from age and stage ministry. Alone, at least. We can keep it, but it can't be the only thing. We need to have events and gatherings that, like the early church, you were just all in. You're all around the table. You weren't being sort of ushered out the door. You were part of it. And lastly, we need to commit to a smaller community. Not this size. This is too big. But a smaller community of faith siblings. Sisters and brothers that will hold us accountable. That will pray with us. That will nurture our faith. That will maybe even give us a slap on the hand when we need it. That smaller community. And so, in summing up this morning, brothers and sisters, the church is a family. It's a metaphor, but, but it's a reality. The church is a family. There are obstacles, for sure, to living into that reality, but there are also real ways to fostering that culture of family. And, you know, I'm excited. Like, I've only been here for a few months, really, but I'm excited by what God wants to do among us, intergenerationally, working together as a family. And I'm excited by perhaps moving from this picture, where it's mum, dad, boy and girl, and then you go home and you do it alone, to more of this picture. It's around a table. It's fellowship. It's everyone valued, included, participating, belonging. And so, as I close in prayer, I just encourage you to stay open. You might have had quite a radical lifestyle that Jesus has called you out of today. Or you might have always known church like me, growing up in it, it's been the culture. But either way, I think that there is a word for each one of us this morning, and it is, how can we put God's family at the centre of our lives and our faith? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for what you're doing in our time and in this place among Topol Baptist Church. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters here. I thank you that you've called us to do life together, to not do it alone, to not try and figure out the big things, the big decisions by ourselves, but you've, you've called us into this whānau.
And I just pray that you would help us as we continue to have conversations and prayers and, and, and brainstorm what it might look like for this to, to take place, that you would just guide us and lead us, Holy Spirit, that we would not try and manufacture it, but we would know that you are calling us into it. Give us ideas, give us inspiration, and just be with each person here as they go into their week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you, Mike.